Today's scripture reading for the sermon is Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, but we're just going to read a portion of this. So if you will turn to Genesis 1, 1 with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Oh, sorry. Please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll start over. Okay. (laughs) Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. Now we'll go to verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Well, good morning and welcome. I am Vincent Hoppy. I'm the uh, pastor here at Grace and Peace. Grace and Peace Church exists to bring the healing of the gospel to every broken place. And that includes all the broken places in our heart, the things that we are afraid to tell others and to let others into as well. You can follow along in the book of Genesis with us. We're going to be starting Genesis, which tells the story of the world in which we inhabit. It tells our story. It tells us about who we are, where we're going, and, and uh, it, it, everything that kind of it, it sets the trajectory for the rest of Scripture, the rest of this story. So we're going to be wrestling with huge topics. I will be really just upfront with you. This might be the most unsatisfying sermon in human recorded history. Why? Why? Because there are so many things to say about Genesis, and we're not going to get to them all. It would be impossible. And so, you know, 30 minutes up here, I am not going to be able to cover everything that you possibly want. So we're going to cover topics, though, uh, throughout Genesis of creation, evolution, ethics, sexuality, biological sex and gender. What is a human? What is the soul? What the heck's up with eternal judgment? You know, and, and so forth. So 30 minutes isn't going to be enough to talk about everything and every little fine, minute detail that we could possibly talk about. So... I'll meet you. I'll meet you somewhere. Four o'clock next Sunday at Goat Patch Brewery, I'll be enjoying a root beer. I don't know. You know. <laughs> but come, meet me there, and we can discuss. And we're going to start off talking about creation, history, and evolution. So we're going to start off there at uh, 4 p.m. at Goat Patch Brewery. You can meet me there. But the book of Genesis in the Bible tells one story with a climax and the main character and the person that we're looking for is the person of Jesus Christ, the rescuer. But how do stories work and how do they work for our world? If you were a clinket child, you would know about a story. And the particular story that you would know is, is in regards to whether or not you go down to the shore in the evening. You do not do that. Why? Because as the, your elders or your ancestors would have told you that there is a sea creature that takes kids away if they play by the shore at night. Because one night a young girl went down amongst the rocks away from her parents and at that moment when the sun was gone and the moon hit the water, the monster came out of the ocean and swept the little girl away. And out of that story, no child goes down to the shore to play at night. It gives me the heebie-jeebies, right? But the story serves not the purpose of telling why kids, or why, you know, what exactly happens uh, at that moment, but the story serves to tell kids, don't go there. It tells, gives them a reason why not to go there. It is not about the mechanics about how kids disappear. Stories that we tend to tell, uh, usually uh, uh, nowadays, they're scientific, and we tell about all the mechanics. This is exactly how it goes. Genesis isn't doing that. 
Genesis is like the story about the sea creature in some ways. It does not mean it is untrue. It does not mean that it is untrue, that there's no historical facts about it, but rather it is telling something in order to get you to do something. So the story of Genesis is more concerned with the why and what for than the mechanics, than the how. Okay? If you want to read that, then you can have discussions with people through science books. So when, John, when a young Jewish boy, we'll name him Shlomo, would ask his mom, Hey mom, why is there something instead of nothing? Why do we treat other humans with respect? Why should I worship the one true God? Do the other people worship, why do other people worship many gods? What makes me different from the animals? First off, you've got to tell that kid, stop asking so many questions. <laughs> Slow down, Shlomo which means Solomon, but what's the purpose, right? We ask those questions. And what, do you, what, would, what would mom tell Shlomo? In the beginning, God created. And it starts that way. It helps you understand who you are, what you're made for. So it answers the questions of why we are here, Why is there something instead of nothing? And what you're made for, those are the questions that it's wrestling with. It answers these big existential questions of which every freshman in college, well, probably not freshman anymore, senior in college is wondering, I got a four-year degree, now what's my purpose in life? It begins to answer those questions. Not exactly your chemical makeup, It doesn't tell you exactly how in the world the molecules bind together to make you you, but rather tells you more about how you're created. And so it wrestles with those existential questions. Why do I exist instead of not existing? And how in the world do I live this life? So if you've seen Toy Story 4, you'll know a character by the name of Forky. He's actually a spork, fashioned into a toy, but he wrestles with his identity as a toy. He's always wanting to throw himself away because he believes that he is trash. And oftentimes in modern people, we more or less sometimes look in the mirror and think, I'm trash. But instead, Woody, his friend, the cowboy, the faithful one, the main character, he tells Forky, that he was made to be loved by his creator. And so he tells him the story of creation in order for Forky to understand who the heck he is. And we're told, and he is told, that he is not trash, but he's treasure. He's a treasure, and we're told the same. So stories about our origins and particularly the Christian story of origins, tell us not how it happened, but rather why and what for and what is the reason. So if you're concerned about the mechanics, then this sermon is going to disappoint you. If you want to argue about how old the earth is, or what in the world does a day mean in the book of Genesis, this sermon's going to disappoint you. You can come hang out with me, over at Goat Patch Brewery, and we could discuss it there. So this creation story 
is very different than many of beginnings that we want to have today. We're scientific-minded. Today, we want to know all the processes. We want to know the mechanics. We want to know... We, so what we do is we collide particles at the speed of light in Switzerland to find out about our origins. We want to study the role gravity plays. But here's the deal. Even if we got those answers, the little mechanics, would they actually be satisfying? It doesn't answer the existential questions. It doesn't answer why. It doesn't doesn't answer, what am I for? And so these are the questions that were asked by a Jewish exodus community who were leaving Egypt where there were a bunch of slaves, and also the same questions that were being asked by a bunch of exiles in Babylon who were mistreated. Those are the questions that were being asked, and Genesis answers their questions. So an ancient Near Eastern uh, uh, story, or cosmogony, so... Here's a, here's a fun word for you. You guys ready for, for a fun little, little 50 cent word? Yeah, I just got to throw that out there. Cosmogony. Yes, cosmogony. Yeah, that's a nice word. Throw this one out there with your friends and we're like, someone's been reading. No, uh, so cosmogony is an is a origin story. And so Genesis is an ancient Near Eastern origin story. How can we tell? Well, it starts with in the beginning. But any origin story has particular languages, language that it uses. And so there's different types of language, right? So there's imagistic language, like in songs and stuff like that. I'm not talking about like, uh, you know, Kelly Clarkson songs. Just, those are kind of more like prose that are somehow sung on rhythm. I don't know what's up with those. But so, uh, the, you know, there's, there's imagistic language that are kind of songs, poetry. It uses analogies and, and different things like that. And then there is something called everyday prose, which is how you and I talk together. And then there's another language category that is kind of scientific language, which is like a recipe. So what do we have in the book of Genesis? In the book of Genesis, you don't have total poetry. You don't have rhyming meter. He doesn't, he doesn't use all of everything that is at his disposal in, in, in kind of Jewish Hebrew poetry. But you don't have everyday language. And you most certainly don't have scientific language. What do you got? Well, you got lots of repetition. Anyone notice the repetition? Ten times it says, and God said. And then it talks, it gives a summary, so, and it was so. And then it tells you three times that it was good. In fact, one time it says it was very good. And so there's this forming. We have three days in which there is forming of things. And then there's three days in which there are filling of these three things. So you see this really structured. It's repetitive, which tells you, well, this isn't everyday language. This isn't scientific language. It's a, somewhere in between poetry and everyday language. It's what we would call heightened prose, maybe. Why? Because the author of Genesis is trying to answer particular questions to a particular group of people. And so he says and speaks in a particular way in which they would understand. Um, let me put it this way. You know, is it a myth? No. It's not a fictional story. But it's what C.S. Lewis would call a true myth. So it's a historical story telling you exactly what you're for. But is it science? No. But it's the basis for science. 
If there's no order, there's no personality, if there's no constancy, and it is not preserved, sustained by a particular person, how in the world do you do science? If everything is just kind of random chance, how do you, you have no constance. If there's no constance in the world, how in the world do you do science? You can't. But we observe that the world has constance. It's held together. It's sustained. It's the way it was meant to be, and so we can do science. Uh, is it history? Uh, no, this is not CBS, it is not CNN, it is not Fox News, it is reporting. It is not just that kind of like reporting. It is a history in which a particular group of people would understand how they came to be. It is not told in a vacuum. It is reporting with a particular perspective. Wait a second, maybe that is reporting today. You're reporting with a particular perspective, you know, in order to kind of get, get, you know, help you understand a certain something. So it's absolutely we would understand that. So my kids would ask me this question, Vince. Vince, what is it about? Well, they probably wouldn't call me Vince, they'd call me Dad. Dad, what is it about? It's probably more theological. It is particular narrative, a particular story to help them understand themselves. So my kids, they might ask me, Dad, how did our family start? And so I do not tell them about how the chemical reactions in my brain went firing whenever I saw my wife for the first time under perfect lighting, talking to my friend Philip Robinson. No, I tell you a romance story. Oh, she was standing over there, and I had heard about her, I would tell them. And I walked up to her, and I had never, ever taken the initiative to talk to a girl on my own that I actually thought was attractive. And for some reason, the weirdest thing came out of my mouth, and it was this. What's up, girl? And so that is how I would tell the story about how they became a family. So you understand now that there has got to be a God because for a young little Filipino man to come to a tall, blonde, beautiful woman and say, what's up, girl, and somehow they have a family, it takes a miraculous act of God, right? And so I tell that story. And so it is more about a home story and how we became a family. That's the way Genesis works. Rather than a house story telling you about the beams and the rafters and how much insulation you've got up in the, up in the attic ceiling space. It is more of a story about how we became a family and how things came to be. But does God's story of creation, how does this work? It tells the inheritors of the story who made us, how, how do we answer these things, and, and who we're for and why. So it tells us about the creator, the creation, and the created, the creator. So the story starts like all good stories in the beginning. So the narrator begins to tell us what a week was like. You know, this is God's work week. We're told that God made everything. And in the beginning, this first verse, it starts with, in the beginning, God created, which is actually a little bit outside of the narrative. There is a particular tense in the Hebrew that tells you that this is background information. God created it. It was not pre-existing. It came out of nothing. And then it goes into the story of how God, of the met, of the work week of what God's creation looks like, and then it says, and if you were to read it like in the NASB, it says, and then God said, and God said, 
And it'll keep going and saying, and. Why? Because the word and in Hebrew is this little narrative word that helps you understand, hey, he's telling a story. And so it's a success of patterns. But in the beginning, in the very beginning, there's no and. It tells you that it's giving you background information. And so here's a good framework for all of your th- theology, though. It tells you in the beginning there was nothing except God. The number one question in which everybody asks in the world was well, like, well, who created God? Every good four-year-old asks that question. And do you know what? A lot of your friends are still asking that question. And they've been asking us since they were four. Who created God? And do you know what your answer is? Only God can be an answer to himself. If God needed a creator, you do not follow that God. So God has always been, he always will be. And so God is the only answer for himself. He's dependent on himself. And so, though we see that he is the initiator, and there's no competing forces to his power. So here's a good idea of how to understand your theology. God initiates. God is the starter. God is the main actor. He never, it is never ever man getting to God. It is never ever you clean yourself up first and then you can come to God. It is never ever get your act together and then God will like you. No, the story from the beginning of creation is that God initiates and God comes after. God makes. God speaks into darkness. God makes order out of chaos and the mess of your lives. And so we see that he's a sovereign initiator. We see he's sovereign and he's also pleased by his creation. So he's sovereign. God's rule and authority and power, they are final. He's the king of this universe and this is his kingdom. The creation story is not like others in the time period. You see, notice there isn't a cosmic battle. If you look at any other ancient Near Eastern story, there's like, there is like this good God and there's this bad God and they fight and then there's this accident. They're called humans. And so, you know, it, or, or humans are created as a byproduct and they are to be slaves for the gods. But there's no one competing with him here. There's no other personalities. It says, God said, and it was so. That's exactly the way it goes. And so, you know, uh, at times we, we think about ancient Near Eastern people and pagans. They deify the sun. They worship the sun, the moon, anything that is created. But notice that even the sun and the moon aren't even created until day four. And they're just named and they're told to go over there. Who has that power? Only the God of the universe. Only the true God who made everything has that power. Uh, today, the story goes that you, you know, you're free to create your own story. You're free to make your own narrative. You, know, you be you. you know? But here's the deal. Is your will strong enough to compete with the will of God. No. No. 
God is creator. We are creatures. We owe our existence to God, and he has the right and the might to tell us what to do. And this is the way the story starts in the beginning. The story is God's work is that he has no competitors, and it does exactly what he says. So we get the background information, and we see that God makes, that God creates. He created, and it uses this word, bara, which is the only person ever attached to the only subject is the word God. It isn't Vincent Hoppy makes. It isn't, you know, some child makes. It's God makes. And he forms and fashions out of nothing. He is the only sovereign creator. He's the one sustainer. Notice that in, the, in here, he creates an earth that sprouts vegetation. It yields food. And so he's also the sustainer. There's one creator, one sustainer, one sovereign who's able to give and keep your life. And listeners of this story who are understanding who they were and who God is uh, would understand that this is a sovereign ruler to whom we owe all our allegiance and thanks to. Every breath comes from and is dependent on God, not our effort. Every breath is grace. Notice that the sovereign also separates and he calls good. He separates light and dark and waters from water. He distinguishes between things that do not belong together. He has created a world and then he has the right to determine what is correct, what is good, what is moral. Good and evil are in his hands and it belongs to no other. He is the just ruler. And so we see in everything in creation has a moral oughtness in the universe. You know when you see a hot dog made out of 30 different animal parts, you just know that is morally wrong. There's, what in the world is that, okay? And why is it artificially pink, okay? There's no... Why? That's just morally wrong. No, there's certain things that are just morally wrong. You look at them like, no. That isn't the way it ought to be. Notice that there's always something that we're saying that this is the way it ought to be. And every time that we complain about something, there's some sense in which we say this is not the way it ought to be. There's an oughtness into everything in life. And that there is one person who could be the arbiter of this, and it is God himself. And it happens by the power of his word. He speaks into darkness and chaos. So in verse 2 It says that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. The readers would be like, "Uh uh-oh, we know all about the darkness. We know all about being formless and disordered and chaos reigning. But I venture to think that maybe you do too. You know what disorder looks like. When things in your life aren't the way they ought to be. Why do I have to fight to get out of bed in the morning? Why do I at times wish I could close my eyes and never open them up again? Why is it that the darkness sometimes we think is going to get us? Things aren't the way it's meant to be. But we see here that God comes and says, let there be light. And so this tells a bunch of people 
that God himself can speak into the chaos of your life and bring light and bring order and put it to be correct again. And he does it by the power of his word. He speaks into your hurt. He speaks into the things that you are thinking will decreate you and put you into the ground so that you are no more. You know, it is by his powerful word, the personal agent of Jesus Christ, God himself brings order out of chaos. So if you're experiencing the chaos of disorder, maybe it's depression, maybe it's the darkness that you just can't tell anyone. You got to let God speak into that shame, that guilt, that failure, that dread, that depression, that illness, and say it is no match for his powerful word. Do you trust him as sovereign? The interesting thing is, is John will say, do you know what the powerful word is? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and the darkness did not overcome him. The personal agent of the word is the person of Jesus Christ. Let me explain this. If I want a sandwich, either the agency of Vincent Hoppy has to go to the refrigerator and put ham and cheese on some bread and make a sandwich. Or I will have to have an agent like my child go and I say, make a sandwich. And just out of a good joke, I'm going to get cheese and mayonnaise and peanut butter on a couple pieces of bread. And they're like, knock yourself out, dad. But it's always a personal agent making things happen. So if things are created by the power of his word, what is the agency of his word? John tells us it is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's come to dwell among us. And so when Jesus Christ comes into your life and speaks a true and better word over you, he is stronger than the darkness. The darkness has not overcome him. So he has the power to recreate even in your world. He is an unrivaled king. He is forming a world fit for his rule. But it also says the be- this beautiful thing. When God looks at his creation, this is a sovereign king that isn't going like, prove yourself to me, little ones. Make yourself pleasing to me. No, it says this. He creates it. And it says, very good. God said, looked at it and said, very good. Which is probably hard for a lot of us to believe that anything could possibly be very good. He's not just saying, hey, I inspected it, it's good, you know, check mark. But no, it is the same very good as if you and I sat down, had a great meal, had full bellies, good drinks, and said, ah. Oh, this is very good. It is the same satisfaction that you get out of, out of getting off of a roller coaster and you say, that was very good. It is the same satisfaction that you get after careening down a mountain, feeling the icy cold blast of snow in your face, going 40 miles an hour, avoiding people who are like falling over in the snow, and you say, ah, that was very good. God says that about his creation. It's very good. He looks over his kingdom and he is satisfied. 
And so here's the startling thing. As we see that God is creator, we must know that we are not creator. We're creatures. And you must acknowledge him as king and find yourself under his rule and not your own. Don't follow your own judgments. My own story is this. You know, we see this naturalistic world. I was living in a naturalistic world. I was a probably a junior in high school where I'm all like, this is stupid. I can explain everything in this world by my five senses. I've got it. I can explain it. Boom, got it. Right? And so it doesn't really matter where we came from. Let's just get it done. Let's just live life. It's okay. But I couldn't give particular answers for everything in the world. And how did God interject and speak into my life? But it was a high school teacher who told me, like, hey, uh, macroevolution, you know, lightning through primordial soup, making, uh, you know, constituting all the amino acid chains, proteins, and building blocks for single-celled organisms, and single-celled organisms, explaining all the genetic diversity in the world. Well, that seems really far-fetched. And I was like, what? He's like, well, that necessitates at least some, some, some understanding of, like, an outside force. And everyone's all like, what, like God? And he says, well, if that's what you want to use. And then he said this, and I think it's where kind of the knife turned in my heart, and I had to rethink everything in my life. He said, but more than that, evolution couldn't possibly give you a reason for living. can't tell you what love is. And at that moment, I started thinking, well, goodness gracious, why am I mad at my alcoholic dad? Why am I so sad that my mom left? Why am I so pained that I just want to sleep forever? Naturalism couldn't give me those answers. I needed to have a creator. See, I had no basis to call anything good. I had an existential crisis. And only the existence of God can possibly give us that. But then we look at the creation, and I'm going to be a little quick here because I spent so, to- so much time on this wonderful creator. So the creation, God creates everything and it is good. He creates it to sustain life and to glorify him. He gives it this benediction even. He blesses it and says to them in verse 22, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the sea and the birds. Let the birds multiply on the earth. So he's filling this, this earth. And creation isn't warring against him. You see, this is kind of very distinct, the thing here. We see that God is distinct from creation. There is the creation, like time, matter, everything you see, feel, touch, everything is creation, and there is a creator opposed to that. So when Jesus makes the claim that he is the creator... People were rightfully picking up stones to stone him. How in the world can the creator become creature? And we also see this amongst pagan, or probably like New Age, Eastern cultures, that everything is just an emanation of God. Everything is just an emanation of God. But here we see that creatures are distinct from the creator. We also see that the creation is not a cosmic accident. You know, it it is on purpose. It is on purpose. 
We see this beautiful creation and that we see nature and we love it and it is good. We also see that the, the, the um, creation story of, of, of Christianity is looking at creation and saying it is good. It is not something to escape from. It is not something to escape from, which is very different. Creation is good. It is to be enjoyed. We even see God enjoying his creation. And so nature, when you go out and you go on a hike and you see beautiful vistas, when you eat good food, when you share a laugh with a friend, it's good. It is not to be missed. God has created it good. He's not just going to scrap it. He's going to radically change it, but it is good. But it cannot be enjoyed as ultimate. It can thrill us, but it's only a hint. It's only an appetizer. Nature only shows the work of his fingers, but if you want to see his heart, look at his image bearers. If you want to see his face, look into the scriptures and see Jesus Christ. Creation is called good. He doesn't scrap it. He redeems it by the power of Jesus Christ and he heals it through Jesus Christ. That is why Romans 8 says that the creation groans waiting for the redemption and the revealing of the sons of God. Creation is good and he loves it. But let's think about us who are created. It means we're dependent. We're not the primary cause for ourselves. We are not the creator. We don't also have to make ourselves. Do you understand why that's good news? If you're the person who doesn't have to make yourself have a grand story, you don't have to be grand, you don't have to be extraordinary, you don't have to do anything. You could. You're free to be ordinary. Do you understand what that means? Because if it was up to you to make yourself something, to rise above, then, oh my gosh, please get me out of this world because I'm never going to rise above that. But if instead, God is the author of creation and he is the one who writes it for you, And then he tells you your dignity and your value is not in the story you make for yourselves, but it is being made in the image of God. That's why it stops on day six and he says, let us make. Notice everywhere else it said, God said, and it was so. Then suddenly there's this pause and the climax of the story comes on day six in the creation of humanity and he said, let us make. And on the completion of that, God said, it is very good. So you and I, created in the image of God, you are no accident. You know how you tease your, your sibling whenever you say, like, hey, uh, you're an accident, you know. <laughs> or my, my brother used to tell me, he's like, Vince, we found you out behind the garbage bin. That's what he used to tell me, right? Here's the beauty of this story. You being made in the image of God means that you, you are no accident. 
God knows you. He looks at you. He sees you. And he loves you. And he sings over you. And he says about people, you are very good. You are very good. And in the end, like a warrior ending his battle, it says he rests. God has won the battle, and so he rests. He's won the battle over darkness, over the formless void. And so how in the world do we get back to that kind of cre- creation? How in the world do we ha- feel in the, that, that we are very good? How in the world do we have a word or a judgment over us that is very good when all we feel is that I am deformed, I am invalid, I am not good, and that's all we ever say? We need a new creation. It's like the concert master has stopped the concert to retune the concert. And Jesus Christ is that concert master to bring us back in line. So how do we get it? How in the world, when all we feel is decreation, uncreation, that I'm about to unravel into chaos at any moment, do we possibly have order? It is only because Jesus experienced decreation that you can have recreation. It is only because in his body he became formless and void that your world can take shape and be ordered. It is only because the darkness came upon Jesus and we read in the stories that at that hour though Jesus was died, that the earth was covered with darkness, that you could possibly live in the light and that it could expose your shame. And guilt, and you know, this isn't going to destroy me. It is only because Jesus was uncreated that in him you can experience the new creation. You are created. He looks at his people and says, good. And he won't scrap you. The story of Jesus Christ is that he has come into the world because God so loved the world in order to redeem it. Not to scrap it. God doesn't look at you and he doesn't look at his world and say junk. God does not junk his world. That's what the creation story tells us. You are valuable. You're very good to him. So very good that in Jesus Christ we have a new creation. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, who spoke creation into being by the power of his word, Jesus Christ, Lord, help us to see and know that Jesus Christ was the one who was torn apart, broken apart, experienced being formless and void for us, so that we would be made whole, so that we could have healing so that we can get back to the song of creation that was sung from the beginning. Lord, help us to see you as the creator and the recreator. Help us to know 
that we are not cosmic accidents, the chance collocation of molecules for which there is no end because there was no intentional beginning, but rather we are on purpose and therefore we can have purpose in Jesus Christ. Help us to get that at the heart and help us to receive it in the elements of this sacrament of communion that you were torn apart so that we could be made whole. Oh Lord, meet us here now in your word made flesh, in your words made visible in the sacrament. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Here at the Lord's Supper, it is our, the words of God made visible and tangible and speaks the truth to us that it was his body that was broken so that we could be made whole. And that is what we experience here. But if that isn't the confession of your heart, that Jesus Christ was broken for you, that his blood and his life was poured out and given for you, then we ask that you don't take this. We don't want you to do anything inauthentic to where you are in your spiritual journey. Observe, we're happy that you're here. If you have questions and objections, I would love to sit and answer and talk about them with you. But this is a meal in faith, and because it is a meal in faith, let us proclaim our faith is signed and sealed in this meal. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And we receive the elements by coming forward. You will be given bread. You can take and eat then. And then there is uh, grape juice on the outer ring and there are wine on the inner rings. There is gluten-free bread up here. But it was on the night that he was betrayed that Jesus took bread and after giving thanks, he took it and he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Likewise, after supper was ended, he took the cup and, after, and, and said, This cup is of the new covenant in my blood. Drink of it as often as you do in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim his death on our behalf. It is when we eat this bread and we drink this cup that we proclaim that the Creator has come into His creation so that we could be recreated and you could be made whole. And if you know that Jesus Christ has come to make you whole, even if your faith is small and tiny and weak, like mine is at times, this is for you. Because it is not based on the power Or the strength of your faith. It is based on the strength of the creator who put it together. And who loves you and came after you. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, I pray that we would eat and drink, enjoy, enjoying the elements of your creation in which you speak to us in which show us 
your goodness. I pray that these elements would speak the true and better word that we are very good in Jesus Christ, recreated to know him far beyond our sin. Lord, speak to us now, here. And Lord, if there's any of us who feel far off, but still yearn for you to come into our lives, we pray that they would come and partake, even with weak faith, on the one who you are, the one who is strong. In Jesus' name, amen.